What's up, everybody? Welcome to Mike Dawes Has a Podcast. My name's Mike Dawes, and I do, in fact, have a podcast. Joining me on this journey are the good people at Tonewood Amp. The Tonewood Amp is the amazing guitar gadget that sticks to the back surface of your acoustic guitar and vibrates, reverbs, delays, and other loveliness through the sound hole as if by magic. Because why should electric guitar players have all the fun? To find out more about the Tonewood Amp and to get a very special discount, head to MikeDawesHasAPodcast.com and try one out for yourself. This show is all about guitar, guitarists, and the music industry in general. I'm really excited to catch up with some friends who I've met on the road over the years, and I'm honored to share some conversations with some really exciting guests I'll be meeting for the first time. Be sure to follow all the guests on their socials, as well as Tonewood App and myself, by typing things into the internet. And do remember to leave a review of the podcast so we continue making more. Thanks very much, guys. Let's dive right into it. Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome. My guest this week or this edition of the little podcast here is the one and only man who needs no introduction from uh, from a fellow a fellow countryman of mine from the United Kingdom, Mister Mister Newton Faulkner um, of of legendary acoustic guitar and uh, and musical status. Uh, Newton Faulkner, welcome. How are you doing, man? I am very well indeed. How about you, sir? All good. All good. I've got my my goblet of um, straight sambuca. <laughs> with me very nice yes it's nice to see you again <laughs> how's uh, how's lockdown treating you it's just weird well i think this time <laughs> i seem to be being very productive but last time just everything ground to a halt and i was like so what i can't do because i had a tour coming up that went and then it looked at, like i've just watched tours like falling over like dominoes into the future so yeah it's been weird i had a very unproductive first half of lockdown but i feel i feel it was very useful in a lot of random ways so i feel like i sorted my life out in like the first one and this one i think is all is going to be pure work okay well that's it's good you're in a workplace i remember so for the benefit of anyone listening we're recording this at a time where the uk has just like yesterday or the just announced another formal like covid lockdown where yeah for a month we're like forbidden from doing stuff which has really made no change this end i've just been locked in my basement the whole time anyway to be honest but yeah, um, most people i know are being pretty careful so the fact that you're not allowed it's like well i wasn't really doing that anyway so it's not a dramatic difference yeah that's what happens with musicians we, we we've been kind of stuck doing nothing anyway so it hasn't really affected us <laughs> Or in that regard, I would, I would assume. Well, hey, I, I was thinking earlier about the first time that I actually knew of you. You were on my radar, and I realised that it was actually a lot earlier than I guess one would think. It was when I was thirteen or twelve, and I was playing guitar in a competition called the Riffathon. Oh, were you um, there as well? I was there. Yeah, I was. I was. Oh no way! Yes. Yeah, so, so this is this is <laughs> Jimmy Page from Led Led Zeppelin had this guitar competition um, called the Riffathon, and uh, which is the best name ever, isn't it? Oh, um, yeah. There yeah. Be more Riffathons. Yeah, they should. It was great. Well, I, I remember I was twelve or thirteen, and I got to the semi-finals and and got rejected, and then as as part of the final, all the contestants were kind of invited to kind of go to this event and and all the finalists would play and then there was this sort of musician and, and as i guess was it the halftime show like the eurovision halftime show absolutely or something absolutely no idea i basically said i'm only singing if i can do some of my own stuff and then oh, they let okay. me do some of my own stuff well that was it and i remember seeing this guy and you were you were you were newton battenberg faulkner 
Oh, was it that long ago? Uh, yeah, I did use my middle name for a while. Don't, I have no idea why. Makes no sense to me now. Well, I just remember seeing this this guy play. I'm like, oh my god, this guy's incredible. And then obviously life happened. I was 13, had you know other interests, went to school, got my GCSEs, things like that. And then, uh, what year must it have been? Like 2007, six, seven, something like that. This guy is the biggest thing since T in the it UK. Did go, it did go a bit mad, didn't it? It's weird looking back on it. So kind of look back and like that was that was weird. All of that. So this is your first album, Hand Built by Robots, which is in everybody's record collection, certainly here in the UK. It does sure- appear to be. It's like just everyone got it. And it's weird looking because I don't really know why. I don't know where. It just hit the right point at the right time. Right. And this was a number one album, right? Was it number, number uh, one in the charts? Yeah. Yeah, I've actually, I've never had a number one album, but I've had two number one no, I've never had a number one single, but I've had two number one albums and I think five top 10 albums now. That's insane. Which That's is in- mad. Like, I don't think about it very often because it makes me feel weird. I, I don't kind of like, I don't like kind of looking back at every, like, especially like my own stuff that's gone well. Like it just it makes me feel uncomfortable. I, I'm very British in that sense. So I just move on to the next thing. I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever, still going. <laughs> Dude, I completely relate to your mentality right there. Not that I've ever had anything close to a number one single or album or anything like that, but this this very British thing of just kind of, yep, sure, um, any kind of yeah. compliments or anything is whatever. just... Whatever, no, weird. <laughs> yeah, super weird. So was that even on your radar at the time? Like, was this something you were aiming for or were you just trying to just... Was it pure self-expression? Yeah, I just liked playing and singing songs and I had a... I think maybe two years before that, I'd signed um, an artist development deal, which seems to not exist anymore. I don't think anyone. What is is that for the benefit of for the benefit of the tape? What is an artist development deal for? So, if you go back quite far, artist development deals were something that record companies did for someone that they saw potential in, but didn't think they were like ready to pop. But it was like you are, yeah, you're really good. You're going to be even better. So we're going to get you now and just give you studio time and let you kind of discover your craft, essentially. Record companies then stopped doing that. So that went out the window for for them. And then publishing companies kind of picked it up and was like, well, we can develop artists because they they were much more interested in longevity at that point. Um, publishing companies because it was their money's in the songs. It's not just in the artist or in the records. So it tends to go on a lot longer. So they took over. So I signed an artist development deal with a publishing company and a radio PR company at the same time, which was weird. It had never been done before. Everyone was like, what, why, how does that work? I'm not sure if they did it with other people after me either. Um, so so it so it bombed that badly. Same as, yeah, same as all my other girlfriends, really. <laughs> so so that's essentially a radio PR company with then a vested interest in getting you airplay, which yeah, then feeds into they, the, yeah. the publishing. And I was I was in an incredible position in terms of like in terms of the radio stuff. I mean, you were everywhere, like everywhere. When I was at university, every guitar player on my music course had the handled by robots tab book, you know. 
everyone was was learning the songs i mean everywhere i mean i can't think of in that period especially just you know being a 17 18 19 year old and and then sort of discovering music for yourself just uh i mean e- even to this day that record i'm hearing everywhere in, in in cafes all around bristol you know and actually you've got a spe- you've got a tie to bristol with one of the songs on that record right um the, the infamous cover yeah teardrop teardrop's so strange like the life of it as from like the first time i did it so from right back to the very beginning to what it became and where it kind of still is because i still do it every gig without fail i feel like like I'm almost more likely to not play Dream Catch Me than I am to oh, really? not play Teardrop. Like Teardrop, I feel, is an absolute, like that has to happen. Because I think as a, as a performance piece, it just sums up what I'm trying to do so much quicker. And I've written much more complicated guitar parts. I've written things that are much more of a vocal thing and push my voice more. But that, I think as a way of introducing people to what I do is still the most succinct way of doing it. I think, yeah, that comes across from, so, so can I call you Sam in this? Uh, oh, that's a good point. I should probably be Newton because it'll be really confusing. Okay. Newton. There we but go. Just for the, for, for the, like I am Sam. I'm Sam when I'm, when I do, where there's no microphones involved. Uh, but it. when microphones get involved, I become Newton. Got it exactly. I, I just did one of these with uh, with Finn Greenall, aka Fink, and it was <laughs> the yeah, same it kind is, of thing. It's such a weird thing. I use it as kind of a filtration system. Right, got so it. If one... someone in the street shouts Sam, then they probably know my mum. Got it. Uh, and if someone shouts Newton, then I know where I stand. Got it. Occasionally, got it. I do. There is like a bit of a grey area where my default friendliness comes in very handy because they don't know my mum. They've just got Wikipedia, but <laughs> everything's fine. Amazing. Well, well, Newton's music here, from the, from the point of view of another acoustic guitar player, the reason I think that that cover comes across so well in terms of bringing in like the mainstream audience to, to the world of the fingerstyle guitar stuff, which you've really... I would I would say you're the the first person to really, if not the only person, to bring it to that mainstream audience. You know, is 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 the layering on that tune. You know, it starts with the beat, it brings in the the little massive attack melody, and and it, and, and the vocal comes in, and the bass, and and it's it's such a it makes it so clear about how I guess not only the style of music that we play on the guitar side um kind of is done as a final product but it shows the layering and kind of makes it very obvious that there's no kind of trickery or pedals or anything like that going on um yes it was it was one of the first kind of pieces that i that i heard other than um uh the late eric roche's uh jump and she drives me crazy covers and things like that yeah i'm trying to think who else because there's people obviously if you go further and further back you get kind of John Martin, who I feel almost did it by accident. He was very percussive, but it wasn't like a purposeful, like, this is a kick drum, this is a thing. He, it just happened right. in the way that he moved. And I, I obviously like Michael Hedges going further back, impressive readers, obviously. Like, so kind of the history is quite... I don't know if anyone's properly mapped it out yet, because I know people that kind of think that it's their thing. But then I also know that there's people before them 
that they didn't hear. So the whole kind of lineage gets very lost. I've always been very, very open mm. in that I was taught by Eric Roach, a massive Thomas Lieb fan. And so much so that Thomas Lieb got in touch years ago. It's like, I just want to say thank you for telling people about me because <laughs> there's loads of people that he influenced. And he was like at gigs and heard them afterwards, basically saying that no one else does it and it's completely their thing. And then he left because <laughs> he was oh, really? so annoyed. Yeah, but I yeah. think there was this kind of time where so few people were doing it. It wasn't part of the public thing at all that when people saw it live, they were like, where did you come up with this? Like, you must have come up with this because I've never seen anyone else. And there were people that, I think saw that as an opportunity to be like, yes, yes, I did. <laughs> Whereas I always went the polar opposite. I was like, no, it goes back like centuries. There's loads of like, there's little bits of it all over the place. There's flamenco stuff. There's classical guitar stuff. The weird thing about classical guitar is how young it is. I always think there were people doing it in the 16th century, but it really didn't exist, which is quite the kind of lineage of classical guitar. It's like the second it's like almost like Segovia invented it and then taught Julian Bream. And in, it's that long. That's it. That's right. all there is. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. I think to touch on what you're saying there, people enter this kind of fingerstyle world from different points and have their own influences, of course. Like um, from someone my age, so I'm 31 now. I got into this when I was 17, which was literally the year that that first record of yours came out. Um, and I was in the UK and I was living in Guildford, you know what I mean? Um, uh, where you had a lot of influence, uh, and where Eric taught, um, years prior and where you studied, if I'm, if I'm correct, Actually, at the, ACM. the tutors, the tutors at ACM when I was there, looking back, I was just so lucky. Yeah. So unbelievably lucky. It was like the one kind of little pocket where, like some some of the best players of the world just appeared all at the same time. So there was there was Eric obviously doing his thing, but then there was also like Guthrie was there. Oh wow. Like Dave Kilminster and Jamie Humphreys and all these amazing, like absolute beasts of guitar world. And then at the other end of the kind of jazz round, we had Pete Callard. We had um oh there's I've forgotten his first name. Oh, he'd be so annoyed. <laughs> Just I want to call Mr. him Dave Mr. There was a Mr. Jones. What's his first name? That's really <laughs> gonna bug me. I was so proud for remembering some of them. <laughs> I got carried away. Oh, his name. It's definitely a Jones. But amazing jazz guy, like just crazy. I did loads of kind of all of the kind of West End muso stuff. I remember the last conversation I, I had with him, I haven't seen him for years, but he was just about to start on the Jerry Springer musical and was talking me through the notation wow. he had for that which was like like hurt hurt my brain <laughs> yeah man that, that that does sound like the sort of golden period i mean i grew up on those lick library kind of things you know with guthrie and dave and jamie Humphreys, uh, as you say yeah um, i mean they're all amazing yeah absolutely insane I mean, Gu players. guthrie is particularly terrifying yeah, I, I've still never met Guthrie. Uh, I did. I did oh, a project. Not. No, I did a project with um, Brian Bella, his bass player in the Aristocrats. I wanted to say Aristocats. <laughs> I always get them confused. It's like this <laughs> weird dyslexic thing. Disney movie talented musicians. Um, but yeah, he did a record, uh, and I played a few tracks and and 
I think Guthrie was on it as well. But yeah, we've we've never met, but he is I mean, I read a YouTube comment that said, "Oh, you're like the acoustic Guthrie." And I was like, "Fuck off." Like, no. Like there <laughs> You know who the acoustic Guthrie is? Guthrie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the terrifying thing about Guthrie is that he can do literally anything and he can do anything really well. Yeah. I mean, remember yeah. at the end of each class we had this thing where we'd give him two genres and just ask him just to mix them together. And every single time it was both genre perfectly and mixed. And it just defied logic. It's, he's an absolute mutant. Love him to bits. Must have I haven't been. seen him again. Like last time I saw him was at Victoria train station. Oh, nice. On his, nice. On his way to play with, I think Dizzy Rascal at that point. He had a stint with Dizzy Rascal. Oh yeah. Didn't they do like bulls on parade or something at the roundhouse? Yeah. I think he was on his way to the roundhouse. Oh, nice. That's amazing, man. But I mean, like, what what you're saying about influence and things, you know, if it, it felt like from my point of view and and the people around me in sort of the community of teenage guitar players, is because you made it mainstream, suddenly, sort of, it reached this new level in the same way that Andy McKee releasing Drifting on YouTube did. I mean, that, you know what I mean? I feel like huge. those two, yeah, because it was around the same time. I feel like those two things suddenly made sort of modern fingerstyle and percussive playing just explode. And um, and I remember at university, I was telling my lecturers about you know Andy and and yourself. And this was just this was just as it was sort of coming out, and 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 they didn't really seem to get that it was a thing or understand it. And then of course all the students were were totally on board with it and totally got it. And then and then it's kind of exploded ever since. So so yeah, from the guitar community, thank you, Newton, for uh for <laughs> generating a, an audience of which a small portion kind of has stuck with the the instrumental weirdness. And I must say thank you again for my first ever laser experience. Uh, you kindly invited me to play uh, a couple of tunes at a gig of yours in London with Declan and Matt, and you had lasers. I did have lasers. I've had I've had everything. I've had holograms. What? I've had lasers. I haven't done... I did look at... At one point, I was taken into a venue early to have a look at Britney Spears' projectors. <laughs> Is that a euphemism? Or- <laughs> Apparently not. Um, but they'd just come off tour with her. And what they were doing is, for some reason, no one in America wanted them. So they brought them over and were just demoing them for touring artists and just seeing if anyone wanted them over here. I mean, spe- like crazy, amazing pieces of equipment. They could do... For me, it kind of bridged the gap between projection and holograms. Because at one point, they just put a giant purple ball on the wall and i was like that's that's real that's <laughs> is this is this 3d it's like no it's just really really good i was like oh that's amazing uh, but they were way too much i couldn't i couldn't afford them at that point but i mean in terms of the, in terms of the big production stuff i mean you you've you've also taken the the finger style thing combining it with your your very sexy and, and and very powerful vocal but taking it to the festival circuit in a big way because you, you you're sort of one of the the kind of regular festival acts that i see on the on the bills to this day and beyond the covid thing you know the (laughs) festival thing has become such an iconic part of what you do are there any sort of it's a huge yeah i feel like the kind of acoustic tent is where where it really kind of got going and obviously i've done lots of other tents i spent loads of time like all over glastonbury doing 
I think I've done most of them other than the pyramid. I've done the other stage. There's a few I haven't done, which are the more dancey ones. But the acoustic tent, I feel, is my home. Right. Musically, because everything I've done there has been rammed, really vibey and really exciting. And that's amazing. It's an amazing thing. Like I'd, I had a lot of festivals booked this year, which haven't happened. And I really, really can't wait to get back out and especially with this like latest wave of tunes, I feel like they're really well, um, well kind of honed to work in that environment, particularly excited about my next single that hasn't come out yet. Which is, is, is the polar is, opposite. Like I've released two bits of music recently and one of them took like a solid five and a half months of every day in the studio trying to work out why it wasn't working like absolutely maddening process wow. we changed the tempo something like over 10 times it changed key it changed key in the middle it changed key at the end it has done everything the feel's been maybe like four or five different feels from really swung proper gunk, gunk, to like triplets and all this stuff and it's taken forever and it's only just come out. It's the one that's kind of my latest single that's just doing the rounds now. And the name of it? Uh, Better Way. Okay. And then the one after that took literally five minutes. That's that's really interesting because it seems to me that you you do have this attention to detail in all the stuff that you do, but you're one of the rare acoustic guitar-based kind of artists in that kind of more mainstream bubble that does experiment a lot with other instruments and i've been to your home studio and you have so many toys around it's like um, it is yeah it's a really, zoo it's an actual zoo it is a musical zoo now i'm looking at i'm looking at this it's obviously like i've tidied up behind me but if i go behind the camera actually if i work my way along it is hilarious there's a banjo uh there's an asian zither otherwise known as a gut thing then there's a casio electric saxophone which Excellent. is sitting next to like a small one-stringed African thing that I have no idea what it's called. Then I've got a lap dulcimer, which is next to a gitarlele, which is next to a cigar box three-string guitar, which is made by uh, Hamish, Hamish Benjamin. So it's Nick, Be- Nick Benjamin's son's first ever guitar. Oh, no way. Uh, which I bought, and it was such a lovely experience because <laughs> he was kind of standing in the room in the corner. And I was playing it like, this is cool. And then I think Nick was kind of like, would you like to buy it? And I was like, do you know what? Yes. Yes, I would. Wonderful. I would like to buy it. Well, you are the old, you are the gateway drug into Nick Benjamin's guitars for many people. <laughs> um, in fact, right behind me just here is is my latest Benjamin. I don't know if you've seen this. This is a sort of half baritone thing that we made all out of sustainable wood. So it's all maple, um, but we've gone for a longer scale length and some other bells and whistles on it. And I, I, I've got lots of half songs written on it. But like like you were saying, sometimes these these tunes just take a long time to come out, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you, you, your, your, uh, all your albums featured uh, these Nick Benjamin guitars. Yeah, without um, exception. Like I've done stuff on piano and I've done things on other things. For So there's certain things especially single note stuff. I really, really like, in fact, I was just recording something about 20 minutes ago and I went straight back to the same guitar and it was 
200 quid. It's a really cheap Sagano. But for single note stuff, it just cuts through a mix with such ease. You don't even have to have it loud. It just works. Right. And for strumming, it's pretty horrible. <laughs> it's really like nasal and aggressive and like, eh. Hard work. But for odd kind of bits in tracks that you just want to poke out, but you don't want to have loud. It's amazing. So everything's kind of got its place and purpose and there's loads of stuff that I don't like, I can't really like, I'm not a piano player. I can't play the Asian zither. I can't play the sitar, but I've played all of these things on tracks like banjo. I can't even really play, but I just know sound wise, if there's something missing, what I can what can kind of slot into all the other sounds. That is so, so important and really interesting for, for anyone listening to this or, or watching this to, to kind of understand. There's, there's two people in, in, in my memory who share that kind of ear, ear for detail with different instruments, one of which is um, actually Gautier, who, who wrote somebody that I used to know. Yeah. I got to spend some time with him back in 2020, 13 maybe down in australia at his home studio and the guy had so many weird and wonderful instruments including up to and including different rubber chickens for different notes you know what i mean wow like individual- he's a, he was a percussionist wasn't he like yeah first. yeah so he was coming at it from that angle which is essentially the same as thomas lieb he's another one so i think if you come from percussion and a lot of drummers are MDs as well. There is this kind of attention to detail that comes from being part of the rhythm section. Right, and having an ear for production as well, which is... Uh, and, and Justin Haywood, who, who I play for from the Moody Blues, he has a different acoustic guitar for every song in the set. We have like 19 guitars on that tour. Wow. Because of that, you know, and, and, and sometimes at Soundcheck, it'll be like, you know, he'll be talking to Steve, our front of house guy, and it's like, you know hold on, I think I might, I think this song now lives on this guitar. What do you think? And then, you know, listening with detail, you know, playing, say, Forever Autumn and things like that um, and, and finding the right guitar for it. Um, it's it's something that is a is a common trait among people who have been in the industry and, and recorded on things that aren't just guitar-based music, you know, really working with, uh, with full-bound productions. And it seems to consistently lead to really, really positive results when working with acoustic instruments, which, you know, both Justin and Gautier and yourself are, are so known for, rather than the modern kind of pop production, which I know you have elements of, but, you know, yeah, knowing I your like- studio, you, you have this very organic uh, thing. You know, you have your zither and your p- bit yeah, of piano honestly, here I there. think it's kind of the equivalent of what a lot of other people are doing with little samples and with things like splice and all the big mm. libraries and all this stuff is just finding interesting sounds, but I'm really like the challenge and I do it. I think with every track I do, there's a whole day in the production process where I'm like, right, let's try everything. See what works. <laughs> Sometimes you get absolutely nothing and you're like, Oh, you just need a guitar and vocal and that's done. And other times you're like, I'm so glad I did that. Cause without that, I wouldn't have found that one little thing on the weird pocket piano with the sweep on it that for me makes makes the track feel like it was made recently. I mean, that's always the challenge is you want it to sound classic and modern. And it's, it's a hard thing because obviously if you go completely modern, then you're not going to have acoustic guitars on it. You'll just go full synth. And then that's not really what I do. So, but I feel like I've 
Well, I usually feel like I've failed if there's not some modern element in the production that modernizes it to put it in the the kind of current flow of everything that's going on. But there's this second track, so the next single that's coming out is literally just me sitting in a chair with one mic and just did it. Beautiful. Which is always nice. It's nice when that happens. Totally, totally. It's nice to have a mix, man. And do you find that, um, you know, talking about your your sort of major label experience and having this kind of artist development deal and things like that, was that was that the first two, three, four records that you were with that with that deal? Because I'm just thinking, was there a transitional point between getting more control of your was you know were you relinquishing any kind of control to the major in that and did that influence how experimental you, you could get with these kind of productions and experimentations i think going back to the beginning i just bowed to what because i was working with some really really talented people like mike mike spencer is an absolute just monolith of a thing in the industry like he's been around for a really long time and he has stayed relevant for all of it from working on Jamiroquai to and he goes further back from that actually there's a time period I haven't really delved into but from Jamiroquai and like me and then Kylie and this is mixing and production to I think he did a lot of the mixes on the um Oh, I've forgotten the name. They'll come back to me. Um, but some really like big modern tunes that have come out in like the last two, three years. But he's just, he's been in the top 10 for about 30, 40 years. Sort of a Max Martin type. It is astonishing. That's, a, that's and, amazing. Yeah, so. an amazing human being. So he helped, he helped guide that then to an extent. Hmm. So I was in with uh, a guy called Andy. He's either Andy Parker or Andy McKim, who kind of sat me down at my first workstation and was like, if you want to write, you can write in this room. We've got logic. This does this. This does this. If you have any questions, just come and talk to me. And I'd be like, why can't I get this to do anything? And he'd be like, okay, right. So you have to start here. And I was talked through it, and I started putting things together, usually super weird stuff that made absolutely no sense and was totally mental. And then it would get reined in. And then, so a lot of the, so the first album was produced by both of them. So Mike did the singles and Andy did everything else. And then, so that was the first album. Then after that, actually there's one person that probably had a bigger influence on the first album than than anyone else. And that's, it was Hugh Goldsmith. who wasn't the guy that signed me. I was signed by someone at the publishing company who obviously had a massive influence as well, but particularly on this record, Hugh Goldsmith was really guiding the songs. And he'd just come off the back of some huge pop success with massive stuff. He was like, I think he was working with like atomic kitten at their biggest and like huge pop stuff. And he signed me and a a handful of others as part of a kind of slightly more real kind of like he wanted to sign real musicians who could actually do stuff. Um, No offense to Atomic Kim. They're good singers, but he wanted kind of players, I think at this point and people with kind of slightly more rounded 
musical thing. Yeah. A skill set. Yeah, let's call it that. <laughs> <laughs> so he really got into the, to the songs and was really guiding the process. He's also, he took it himself into radio. And because he even walked through the door, like the heads of radio too, like, oh my God, it's Hugh Goldsmith and he's here. This is amazing. And he had this, this power. He also had the most Jedi presence of anyone I've ever come across. So there'd be loads of people in a meeting. There's a track playing that people are shouting stuff. And he'd be like, actually, I think we should do it like this. And as soon as he said, actually, everyone just went silent. And it was the most amazing thing. Like I still, it's a power that I'd wished that I had and could cultivate. And I was in a car. He was driving me because I did some work. He had a studio in his house that I worked in at one point. And he was driving and someone like cut him up and he was like, it's okay, my friend, you can go. Just absolute Jedi. Amazing. <laughs> so, so, so your advice to, to any younger musicians starting out is work with Jedi. Find a Jedi and stick with them. That's amazing. And, and, and that relationship sustained? Uh, well, no, he left after time? the first record. He disappeared. Ah. He went into, he kind of saw. He became a force ghost. He did, yeah, he went full false ghost. But he became, well, I think he went into publishing because he saw what was coming for the record industry right? before, before they did, really. Uh, he just saw, because he was part of Sony at that point, and I think he just saw like the whole streaming thing and everything coming and was like, do you know what? I'm just going to jump ship now before things get ugly. And he was totally right. Yeah, because that first record was one of the last records to sell normal amounts of physical copies. So around that era, you noticed uh, for for everyone in that industry from behind the curtain, uh, you know, a, a drop off at the dawn of things like Spotify. Yeah, it was right right at the beginning. So it's kind of MySpace and stuff, and streaming was just starting to be a thing. And between the first record and the second record, it could not have been more extreme or apparent. Because for everyone, mm. everything changed. And I think there was only two years between them. That's... So it was a very short, sharp, everything is completely off the table. Also, the, there was a big shakeup in radio due to a change of government. Really? which is quite straight. Well, Radio 1 were really worried they were going to lose their their license because they felt like they could be accused of not fulfilling their kind of official mandate, which is they are to be a radio station for this to this age. But that to that age had kind of stopped listening to radio and moving across to all the streaming stuff. So like if we yeah, don't if we don't push younger they could just shut us down. So what happened is there, there was quite a few of us at this point that were on, we were on both radio stations and that so was like, because you're, you're, you're yeah. So, so radio one's demographic officially is, is what up to I don't know 22 or something like that. Or? I think it was younger. Wow. Going back further. And then Radio 2 was obviously older and had a start point and a 
I don't think it has an endpoint. I think Radio 2 is till death. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And, and all the Radio 1 presenters that, that get slightly too old go to Radio 2 and then stay they there. They hop across. Exactly. So for anyone outside the UK, BBC Radio 1 and Radio 2 are the two biggest you know, radio stations, we all grow up with it. It's 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 what we have and and because it's BBC, it's basically funded by uh sort of the license payer, essentially. Um instead of like uh advertising and things like that. So yeah, just uh in case anyone didn't know what we were talking about with a, a change of government affecting, you know, a radio <laughs> Why station. Why is that affecting radio? Yeah, exactly. But that's really interesting. That's um that's, that was that's totally incredible. bizarre. But what what that led to was a kind of polarizing of the two stations, which meant that I was on Radio 1 and Radio 2 for the first record, which was the absolute, that's what everyone was trying to do. That's huge. Was to yeah. get to a point where you got on both because then you were just everywhere. And then for the handful of people that were on both, when the radio stations polarized, you were suddenly not played anywhere. Like radio silence in its truest wow. form. And it was, yeah, it was so bizarre. Such a weird time looking back at it. That's crazy. I, w- I wouldn't have considered that, but it makes total sense. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and you, do you think that that's, because I'm aware that between, is it between album one and two, you, was that when you broke your wrist or something? Yes. You had a skiing accident and then it was postponed and there was a change of of management or something going on there? Oh, there's so much. Like the industry was in absolute turmoil from that point to pretty much to when I left majors. Like from there on, it was just absolute chaos. Like the wow. third album had, I think, three or four MDs. But the third album was a number one album, if I'm correct. It was, despite everything that was going on. So was that was that a surprise, or were you confident? Massive about that? surprise. You... No, I wasn't confident in the slightest. Absolute <laughs> chaos. And also with the change of MD, because what you're trying to do is get the whole company behind you. And to get the whole company behind you, you need the MD on side. So with each MD, it was kind of nudged slightly one way, then slightly another way. And then you're like, trying to maintain what it is that makes you the artist that you are, but also trying to play the game enough to survive. Yeah. It's immensely complicated. I spent years just making people think that my ideas were their ideas so that they felt some ownership and were happy to kind of go along with it. And I'm hoping that there's still people going around saying that they saved records and mixes all with traps that I set. Excellent. Yeah. That's a lot <laughs> of it, isn't it? When, part wor- of the game. Yeah, working with other people, you know, you've got to um it's maintaining these relationships and and at the end of the day, no one will have as much skin in the game, you know, regarding your own music and your own output as yourself. You know, and and there is a lot of the, the, the there is I think something to be said for the more people involved in working on a project, there is more to worry about, and and it, it can be quite a stressful thing. And I can only comprehend I, I can't comprehend that on on uh, a level with work. I've never worked with a major directly, for example, just a few sessions and things. But um, you know that that must be an incredibly stressful period, especially uh, with the industry, the whole industry in turmoil. So uh, I mean, maximum respect for pulling out another number one album during all of that you know that's uh that's really incredible um yeah that was right right on your skin yeah right, right. on your skin was on three that was just before studio zoo which i think is actually my best by far my best guitar work 
That because was a was really, really special project. That's a really I was that, really limited, which made me really push myself. Well, hello there, everyone. Apologies for the interruption to the podcast, but I did want to tell you about the amazing Tonewood Amp, the awesome sponsors of the show. Many of you will know already that I use this thing all the time, the magical little device that sticks with magnets to the back of your acoustic guitar, vibrates the back surface of the instrument so that reverb, delay, chorus, Leslie speaker effects, and other loveliness project out of the sound hole as if by magic. You can head to MikeDawesHasAPodcast.com now to get more information about the Tonewood amp as well as saving a tasty percentage for yourself. Let's get right back to it. Talking of creativity in your in your zoo of a studio, uh, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know what Studio Zoo is all about, do you have any, uh, yeah, a little, any stories about that? Um, well, strangely, it's the first whole album ever to be recorded live on the internet, which is a weird title for me to hold. Incredible. I'm not the person that anyone would think would do that first. But I just jumped on it and was like, actually, if we put GoPros and we met this company that did some amazing, really clever stuff with it, and we're like, we could stream the whole thing. I thought we could record it in five weeks, or I think there was a reason to do it in five weeks because that tallied with the kind of best time to release. Hmm was that which wasn't long enough like it was rushed in a lot of ways but basically we had cameras all over the house that stayed on 24 hours a day and then 24 24 hours off on a wednesday so i could go and see my son so i saw him once a week for this five week period and yeah you just watched me make a record from sitting there with absolutely no files and no nothing and being like i've got songs now i need to make records and just put it together but loads of amazing people came in like ted ted from montford the sun's bass player came in janet devlin came in random impulse in fact there's a track with random impulse and janet devlin which is such a strange like three people to be working together <laughs> on every level um I'm trying to think who else uh, andrea triana came in that's amazing my so, vocal so, coach came in. Like it was, yeah, people just came in from everywhere. It was amazing. Well, this is so incredible because which what year was this? This would have been two thousand and like twelve, some around. Yeah, this it must time. be about that. Yeah, and I mean, think where we are now, where you know, with COVID, people are trying to think of ways that they can they can access all this new technology and stream what they're doing. And you were so ahead of the curve with that. You you, you live streamed a multiple week long process of writing and recording an album twenty four hours a day in every room in your house. Yeah, I don't think I've recovered yet. It's it was it's an undertaking. So maddening. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the stress. I wouldn't be able to deal with the stress of just oh, this camera's run out of battery, or or you know the technical side. Let alone having to the pressure of people watching you create. Yeah, you know? a lot of batteries melted as well. That's my oh point. yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> That's, it's really an astonishing thing uh, to do, and I think it was around that time that I saw you live in concert for the first time i think oh so that uh, tour that was a good tour so that had a those cellists that was beth i believe so i i I remember you did three sold out i want to say three sold out shows but certainly three nights at shepherd's bush oh yeah no i think that was i've definitely done two or three there you definitely had a um i love shepherd's bush a, a lot of props you had your your salmon snare drum thing like like so 
you know, your your MIDI keyboard on the floor with all these sounds, and then you had a, a, like a globe which had a kettle and some tea in, or a teapot, or something it, like yeah. that. You know, which is the most British thing in the world uh, ever. I just like my toys. Actually, the bass pedals I've been using for a long time. They are useful. So what? Are, what, for, are, what are those? Like what? What's the model? Uh, what the geek? The geek stuff there. So for geek stuff, it's a Roland PK6, and it's essentially part of some of their organs. So the idea is you link it up to a keyboard and you can do churchy, foot pedally stuff there. But I used to run it with main stage off my laptop, which I didn't like because no one should trust laptops ever yep. live. I think in life it's okay, but live just Agreed. avoid it. Um, so I used to run it from that. And it's basically just does whatever you tell it to do. You can use it as a kind of MIDI trigger in its truest sense of just like a keyboard. So you play it where the notes actually are, which I did for a long time. Yeah. And then what I started doing is, as I got more into how it worked, I started going in and moving things around. And then I started taking sounds off records and putting them onto the pedal. So taking like the actual kind of piano chords and bass notes and drum sounds and putting them into it and also putting them where they were easiest to get to. So I could right. do it with one foot and without concentrating too much. Because these pedals are big, you know. We're talking about a, you know, I mean, a couple of feet long. You know, the, uh, the actually, there's a set here. Hang on, I'll grab. Them. So oh, yeah. this is slightly different model. This is the PK five A. Is that a lighter version rather than a full on uh, bottom? No, it's actually got more thing. buttons. Ah, more there buttons. we go. Right. So for the audio side, it's, it's essentially it sort of looks like a massive comb. Yeah. <laughs> essentially. So you've got, what is that? Eight eight buttons on the top or something? And then you've got... Yeah, one, I mean, I didn't like the buttons because for me, it was just more that can go wrong. Yeah. So I don't really like having... <laughs> but it's <laughs> nice. It's... Avoid control where I can. Right. I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, uh, the shows that I do, I have a lot of guitar foot pedals and that takes up a lot of tap dancing. But what you've essentially got there is a secondary instrument to be played with your feet, um, which, you know, and I've seen it live and through a big PA system, Those that, that the bass stuff, it's just absolutely oh, screaming. You really dig in. Like, it's great, for, especially with that and a kick drum on the other foot. You can really fill out the space. That's but the what I'm starting to look at now more and more is the kind of toss up between like you can make this much noise or you can perform this much and really mean it. And it's trying to work out what is more important at what points. Cause there's points mm. where you need to make a huge amount of noise for it to feel the way you need it to feel. But then also when you're doing that, there is a huge portion of your brain, which is, taken out of the performing of the music and into like the kind of physical maths of making it all work. And it is, it is a tricky one. I've definitely, I've taken it too far where I've watched back videos and I've been like, you can see my brain kind of go. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. The vein, like the vein appears. Totally intense stares of stuff. Cause I did stuff where I was playing playing like bass lines on my foot, hammering on on the guitar, hitting stuff on an SPDX with a stick with one hand and playing like, like all limbs, all different patterns straight in. And it is really fun. And there's not that many people that I think could do it that well. 
and sing and like get everything across and at, at a at a world class level that's the thing it's not just doing it it's doing it at that level yeah um i mean it's an incredible thing to witness it's re- well only if you understand what's going on which is the other thing that's the trickiest bit is there's no point in doing something that takes things so far that the proportion of the audience that understand it drops below 5%. Yes, this is a problem I have. <laughs> this is a big problem I have. And it's something that, no, seriously, I mean, I just did a live stream gig and I deliberately did it just completely unplugged, you know, just literally two microphones and a bit of compression. And that was it, you know, and a bit of reverb. But the once we and and this is true of just guitar playing as well when we're talking about the crazy techniques and the 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 polyrhythmic stuff and whatever um and you know foot pedals and all this extra stuff the geeky guitar people absolutely love it and i get it and the geeky guitar people they're like my people you know what i mean like i i I love them and, and i love doing it but every time i you know, I put anything online or even, you know, in some comments I've seen of things that you've done, people are like, oh, yeah, another looping guy or or this yeah. or that. And and not not to say that there's anything, because I do some live looping as well. Everyone's done some live Yeah, looping. of course. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it, like musical it's, weed. It's the f- Everyone's tried it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's just the fact that, like you say, to, to, to spend so much brain power at a live show into something that such a small proportion of people are going are gonna to get is a question you need to ask yourself. It's not something I, I think you necessarily have to just not do. I mean, I, that's certainly what I've been doing a lot. But recently in my mind, and especially since COVID, I step away from the guitar for a bit, I come back to it and I think, well, what do I want to do next? And what actually is the most enjoyable thing? And I think it's going back to what you were saying about a balance and it's taking the audience on a journey and it's, yes, you've yeah. got to get the hyper-complex stuff in there, but then, you know, like that gig at, at Union Chapel um, that you invited me to to kind of hop up for a bit for, yeah. there were moments of, you know, pure complexity and, and craziness, but there were moments of just you by yourself completely unplugged just singing with a ukulele you know what i mean like something yeah, that's think- as stripped down as it could possibly be and variation in a set like that i think something that that a lot more um uh, it's, it's just something that's really really important to understand uh you know someone like yourself you are one of the greatest live acts out there in that acoustic world you're just like you say at all no i mean it's true at all these festivals and and everything um, and anyone who just goes and observes the footage online or goes to a show when this is over will attest to that. But it is about that balance, isn't it? It's about that journey and also having fun yourself because you can't hide behind a big drummer in a, a big production. If you're no. sweating, the audience are going to sweat, you know? It's all that was. I always come back to what music is. And ultimately, it's an ancient form of communication. So if you're not trying to communicate something (laughs) then it's not music anymore it's kind of changed into something else it's i feel yeah circus re circus tree is that a word it is yeah it's that different level of but i mean obviously there's entertainment isn't it it's a different thing it's like um a a really good example of that that i i think having seen this live that ticks both boxes is the incredible um, experimental Nick Benjamin electric that you had made. 
That which is I'm still like I that's still insane. Think, it's insane. I feel like I've scratched the surface of the capabilities of that. Can you explain what that is? Um, yeah, well, it's a, it's an electric guitar, but even that bit has been kind of twisted to work better for finger style acrylic nail stuff and it's got pickup settings that just aren't available on other guitars it's like combinations of the pickups that he's kind of had a real play with and been like that that is actually better because the top end kind of sparkles enough but the bottom end doesn't get out of control but then also it's got these these hollowed out midi trigger sections of the inside of the body so you can hit it and it's on it's kind of done via kind of velocity sensitive triggers. Right. So you have to have it set sensitive sensitive enough that when you hit it, it makes a noise, but not so sensitive that it goes off when you don't want it to, <laughs> which is an absolute balancing act. In I found I changed it almost every gig. I was like, I'm just going to take that down another point one and see if that stops it going off. But yeah, it's got five of those. So it's all MIDI, right? That that side of things. It's not a uh, like individual pickups going through a, a gate of some no, kind. No, that side of things all MIDI. And then the bottom two strings, it's kind of like a built-in submarine. So like kind of Pete Rose mm. thing. So it's a built-in separate line for the two low notes. You can put it through something nice and bassy and kind of doing what i mean this was before before the like the frequency bandwidth on the on the old kind of boss oct one yeah. or in the new ones it's got the lowest note thing which i'm waiting i spoke to the guy he's sending me one I've, um, I've, they literally just sent me one it's on my board right now it's the oc5 it? yeah and i'm yeah i'm waiting for an oc5 they've taught me through it and i was like yes i yeah. want that i mean so i i've I put it on the board and I I recorded with it on this Van Halen cover that I did recently. And is it that one you're using? It sounded so good. Yeah. Well. Well. Th- thanks. Well, I mean, when I record um, with uh, everything I record, I record with the either the OC three or up to now the OC five. But then we just on the recording in post, um, you know, bring it in when it's needed. But um, but yeah, this 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 these kind of pedals, you 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 select the frequency uh, that that the octave will kind of receive sound from. So you can say you can basically make it, you know, only pick up sound from say the bottom bottom string up to say the twelfth fret, and then the A string up but to say the. You still ended fret. up even with the frequency thing. You ended up with a bit of mess, and there's a bit of bleed, especially with chords. You know, um, yeah, kind of. You ended up with bass fifths. A lot. Of time. <laughs> it's. I find that if you adapt how you play a little bit. It, it it works great, but that's the same with anything. I mean, the the Nick Benjamin baritone I have here, I think we've done the same thing as you in that regard. There's two piazzos on the bottom two strings. Yeah, it works really well. It's yeah. clean. And uh, and also we've got a switch, which uh, I don't know if this is the same, but we have a switch mounted on my mag- underneath my magnetic where it will uh, basically toggle between. Um, Sending output through just the bottom string, or sending output. Yes, no, I do have that switch. The it's bottom a very two. good switch. Yeah, so if you if you do have a song with chords, you can just isolate the bottom string only, and you're not going to get, like you say, the uh, the kind of you know fourths or fifths or whatever getting all muddy. But um, but that that electric guitar thing that you had, the, the thing that I found really cool was that you were you were playing a song where obviously you had this screaming bass, 
uh, that was super isolated. And part of that is the arrangement because obviously you're you're picking you're, you, uh, that you're, arrangement. I just kept so far away. I was actually three strings away. Right from the to minimize any point. Any move, like yeah. completely because like, no, well, it just happening. sounded so well thought out in terms of the mix and what what you were doing. And you must correct me if I'm wrong. I hope I've got this right. Is yeah. there were chimes, so so notes uh, creating a sort of counter melody. Yeah, but kind of feel yeah, notes. yeah. But at the same but, time, oh, but so, they were on. Yeah, they were on the same thing as some of the drums exactly that so you were able to say move your hand away from the guitar to trigger a kick drum but if you instead of triggering just a kick drum you were able to trigger a note as part of a melody as well if you hit it over here versus over here which would be say a different melody note with a different percussive element and the whole thing just came out as this seamless uh thing but very lucky that it went right that time it did go horribly wrong quite a few times right. live you're like yeah but that's so great you're kind of it was same with everything like i love like the more dangerous it is yeah the more fun it is for me which is why i ended up doing all the crazy multitasking stuff to the max because i loved how dangerous it was but then watching it back i was like it's really dangerous but for me it kind of just it wasn't entertaining enough it didn't right like I, I wasn't like engaging enough with the songs themselves. Um, but with, with that arrangement, it, when it was right, it was so much fun. I mean, that, that's the thrill, isn't it? I mean, again, the, the, the pedal board of death that's down to, to the side here playing shows, there's so much tap dancing and, and I'm using the, the timeline a lot where I'm holding down a button to swell an effect into this. And then the whammy thing and, but 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 and then pedals go wrong. You know you you have to troubleshoot this stuff live. I remember one show where the distortion just stopped working, and it and you have to troubleshoot this during the concert. And it's so fun uh, when it works. It's like the biggest thrill in the world is when yeah when something goes wrong, but right. you handle it. You know, that's uh, my favorite. Like with that tour to counteract the bits where I was doing as much as I physically mentally could cope with. There was another setup which was just guitar, no pedals at all, and like a hanging mic. And it was the, it was the show that I did at the Palladium. Um, and it kind of switched between absolute purist kind of folk and then to as futuristic as I could go on like another whole setup, Amazing. which was good. I felt that, again, brought that kind of balance that you're always kind of fighting for like. Yeah, I mean, with that level of production as well, you were able to to do a lot of that. I mean, it's, um, uh, I guess there's something that I've tried to do a few times, well, quite a lot actually, is one, if the venue is of a size that is contained enough, um, like not a theatre, but like a, a, a club or, a, you know, a small, a smaller, a smaller room, um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll always unplug and do a tune just walk, walking around the audience with the tone, with the tone with amp stick the tone with amp on and then and then you know you walk up to people's faces and the reverb's hitting them in the face and it's a nice little variation <laughs> on a different scale of a multi-instrumental to a an intimate thing you know what i mean on on, on a fingerstyle guitar show scale um that's a nice change but uh but yeah it's really uh it's really inspiring and it's always been inspiring to see see you take that eric roche fingerstyle world and, and and expand upon it in terms of production and other instruments and things like that and uh yeah i mean I've, yeah. if i go back through the list of things that i've done i've also 
at one point was triggering visuals from my feet. That was crazy. Triggering visuals. Okay. Yeah. So via MIDI, there was one point where I had, I had the bass notes and I had kick drums, but I also had pictures of pirate ships going to a projector that moved closer depending what notes I pushed. <laughs> and I was triggering... I was triggering kind of things that looped round, but I'd recorded them and I'd filmed me doing them. So other versions of me kind of appeared in different places, doing different things. Cause I was like, what I was trying to, to do was use very clever tricks, but in the most honest way that I could. Hmm. So not like, Oh, I'm doing all the stuff at the same time and it's very secretive and you can't know how it works. But make it really obvious that when I pressed this button, a version of me appeared there and did something else with me. But it was completely mental. It went wrong all the time. Well, that's the that's that's the risk of not doing it to click. Yeah. Well, even though it was on click, I've spent yeah, I've done loads well, of so stuff. So it was on click. on click, but you deliberately made it like you, you didn't. You could have basically very easily made it way easier for yourself, but that wasn't fun. It wouldn't have the freedom for me. It's all about, it's, it's the freedom to be playing a song and someone shouts something and you'd be like, what? What are you talking about? No, I didn't. Shh. And then going back in. That's right. what gigging is for me. It's exactly. being, exactly. being I, I, hackled I, and dealing with it like a man. Exactly. Oh, you know what? This is something that um, I did. A, I, I did a, maybe this is so Guildford of us, but like I did a, uh, I did a workshop um, now, I've been doing these Zoom lessons on Sundays, right? I have a few like like fans, and we and we do we do some guitar lessony type things. And one of the things that comes up a lot is is like live performance kind of advice because you know when you gig, like, like the best way to learn about gigging is to gig really. You I know. just get out there as early right. as possible. I think. But the the one thing that I'm always uh, retelling is learning to deal with drunk hecklers in like Fahrenheit or the Tup or like uh, you know in Guildford these bars which. Uh, which I'm sure you've frequented as well, the star, you know. Yeah, I played all of them relentlessly. Yeah, and you get it if you're if you're in an English pub and you're playing a, a gig or an open mic or whatever, and, and someone starts heckling, you learn to deal with that. And when you translate that to a gig, it's sort of it's sort of especially something I find especially in America is it just comes across as this really charming British interaction, sort of just insulting someone in the room it's it's i don't know if you've ever <laughs> do you have any particularly uh odd heckling stories or anything like that that's happened that, that, that oh, stand out? this is so many weird ones i mean to be honest most gigs for me blur into a kind of weird psychedelic event and it's kind of i remember bits of them but not others i mean i remember i was doing a gig i can't remember where i was i think it might have been oh the girl heckling was Definitely Northern Irish, but I wasn't in Northern Ireland. I was somewhere else. I don't think it was Bristol. It might have been Leeds somewhere. But I was, she was obviously very drunk and having a very, very good time, which is fine. You're allowed to do that. Of course. But after something really quiet and complex and deeply personal to me, <laughs> I got to the end and I strummed the last chord and I was like, oh, I did good. I made nice noise. That was, oh, I feel good about that and it, I think it was on like a little guitar I think it might have been like a gitarlele or something and this voice comes out from nowhere can you put a ukulele up my arse 
talking about? And it was just so graphic and odd. Hard left. And everyone laughed, including me. Like, But comedy genius. She waited maybe like four or five songs. <laughs> and then after the next like quiet song in the set, where again, I got to the end, I was like, this is going quite well. This is going well. She shouted, I found a ukulele. Can you find my arse? <laughs> and again, she's like, she stole the show. I smashed it. But isn't that, isn't that, that's, that's what you can't get at streaming gigs. No, you don't get that. I had another one where I didn't know what to do with one of the little guitars. And what I was doing is I was buying them and giving them away wherever I was. I was like getting the cheapest one I could and then doing some kind of competition with them. Hmm. And I finished one song and I was like, never know what to do with these afterwards. And I'd sometimes I had like dance offs or just something stupid just to keep, keep things interesting. And this person shouted, smash it, smash it like Kurt Cobain. And I was like, Oh, maybe right at the end. And it's the only, it's the only guitar I've ever smashed in my life. It's really sad. You did it. You did it. You had, you had your, your Kurt Cobain moment. Yeah, I went in and I was so nervous. It's actually probably the most nervous I've ever been. I wouldn't know how to effectively smash a guitar without damaging, uh, you know, damaging something or getting a lawsuit or, or something like this. And it was scary. I mean, my main fear was as like an acoustic guitarist, I thought, if I try to smash this and it doesn't smash at all, it'll go down in history. It's like, <laughs> why acoustic guitarists aren't cool? And it's because I can't smash guitars in one go. So I, d- I did it with such an incredible amount of commitment. Like I really thought, like I thought about the way that my muscles react to each other. And I was like, if I start from my, I'd done like a tiny bit of boxing. And I was like, if I start from my back heel and really like get the momentum from there and lift with my leg and power down from here and completely like decimated it and probably exploded, which was great. And no one got hurt. So it was, yeah, it was a success. Big felt cheer. bad afterwards. I bet you felt like a king. Yeah. Well, I felt like a king. And then I was like, but I love guitars. <laughs> what did the guitar ever do to what me? What did the guitar do to me? <laughs> like, yeah. I had like weird dreams about it, like kind of crying. Oh no! Bits oh, on the floor. Poor Newton. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Loads I mean, of stuff like there's so many. I've lost power completely. Yes, I ended up, I, like, I had, spinning around on a table in the middle of the venue. Oh, I've had that. I've had um, yeah, like just some gear malfunctions. But um, uh, with Justin, we had uh, the first show of a tour was at Colston Hall in Bristol. Oh, here, yeah, actually, and uh, it was almost. I don't think anyone knows this, but uh, it almost didn't happen because we lost power to the whole rig and, and couldn't get it back and, and literally held doors and, and you know, uh, turn it off and on again, again, and uh, fingers crossed. And fortunately, it, uh, it worked uh, through some miracle, but it was, uh, it was, it was terrifying. Colston Hall's kind of cursed because another time, uh, you know, I went to visit the Moody Blues who were playing there, and and they got stuck in they got stuck in traffic on the M4, and uh, and kind of didn't make it, and uh, didn't um, make it at all. No, well, they they oh, they wow. were already half an hour late, and then I was there just to go and say hi, and then I think uh, the, the manager um, Mark came in and was like, "Hey, Mike, do you have your guitar? Because they're stuck in traffic. Can you just go and 
do something for, <laughs> for for half an hour and i had the guitar but i had no pedals or any gear or backline i happened to have my guitar just in in my car in the car park over the street and then uh, no iems or or because they they have a full in-ear rig and nothing like that so it was just no monitoring guitar jack straight in no oh wow no anything just line check good and then just improv a little stand-up comedy slash guitar and and michael <laughs> evis michael evis was in the audience as well oh, no um, way. yeah yeah i uh, never got asked to glastonbury so maybe i just absolutely bombed, bombed at that. <laughs> but yeah he's a huge moody blues fan apparently i remember another time in the uh the dominican republic talking about your um your your heckler incident and just not a slight unknown disrespect of a slow sensitive moment in a set um as funny as it was i remember i was doing the you know the seven minute celtic ballad where everything's a journey and then it all ends and you get to the you know you get to the the fifth and then you resolve and then it's this beautiful ending outro and literally as i was on that penultimate chord someone just walked up on stage oh wow and just put a beer down next to me and just and i was like i was like what are you doing he's like oh just wanted to buy you a drink i <laughs> just on the stage here's your beer okay yep that's that moment gone but you know pretty funny lasers at that gig as well funnily enough but uh but yeah that's a crazy thing i had a guy i had a guy try and get on stage and get totally taken out by security at a festival (laughs) because we saw him coming and i was like is this how i die this might be how i die genuinely didn't stop playing kept going kept singing just watching this character crazy look in his eyes make his way to the stage and after being taken out by security about half a foot away from me when being asked like who he was and why he was doing that he's like no i'm i'm newton faulkner <laughs> i'm newton faulkner i had to i had to get back i had to get back to myself i had to get i had to get back to where i was just so crazy high on drugs that literally thought he was me and was having an out-of-body experience and had to reconnect with me to rejoin himself. That's pretty impressive. I don't know what he'd have. And his, his jaw reconnected with the floor instead. <sighs> yeah. Poor guy. We have a, 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 a guitar, our guitar tech, um, Chris. He, he also texts for Ted Nugent, of all people. Oh. And uh, there was a famous stage invasion incident that he had to deal with, which was kind of similar. But um, thankfully, uh, no one was shot. that's always that's always a happy ending (laughs) exactly exactly dude um uh, so 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 cool to talk to you about all this all this kind of stuff but i I must i must kind of get a little bit geeky quickly because yeah there's probably probably guitar players listening you know and and uh you work in a lot of tunings and things as well endless tunings i mean i don't actually know what i'm people always a ask what tuning things are in and b like what chords are these? And there's certain there's some tunings where I know enough, and I'm like, oh, well, I'm playing this, and then I go to this chord, and then I do that, and I can name everything. But I use a lot of tunings for like one song, mm. and it's because like at one point I was like, oh, I want, oh, I want that. No, I can't. Ah, oh, sod it. I'm just <laughs> there. It is great. And then go back and rearrange like the first three minutes. To oh, get yeah. this one note where I want it. But then coming back to things like that years later, I'm like, I now I like I don't know. I don't know what the chords are. I don't know what tuning it was. 
to begin like it takes me so long to like reclaim things that came out of my brain but yeah there's definitely I mean, there's where did some you start? Where what, what I know the, what I'm doing. Was it was it Dadgad? Was that the first sort of gateway think, gateway drop? Yeah, Dadgad is classic gateway into weird tunings. But again, drop D before that, so you do a bit of drop D. And like, oh, I like drop D. This is get really chunky, <laughs> lovely. And then you're like, oh, let's do those two as well. Why not? Now we started. And then from there, my A string went down a tone as well. And then after I did that, like I I love that tuning. Ah, uh, that's. Yes, sorry. That's something that I've noticed about your uh, your tunes. I, I I was introduced to that through one of your tunes. Um, yeah, I love that. But with the G, so so diggadigad, the drum fill tuning, diggadigad. Yeah, yeah. It's um, I love it. I just like the fact that you've always got kind of octaves everywhere, and you can really dig into them and make them all chunky. And also, I think I need something was like I started it. writing writing it in dadgad, and then I was like I wanted. I wanted to go up a fourth, like all good people do. Um, <laughs> then tuned the string down and was like, oh, this is actually this is quite good. And then I found all the chords in there, found all the shapes, and but it's still it's much more kind of exploratory. My whole kind of writing process, if I get if I get stuck somewhere, then I might analyze what's going on. Mm. But until that point, I'm just listening and feeling. And there's definitely things where I've been like, I, I think that I think I want to change keys. So I'm like, okay, so I'm I'm here. I'm on this chord, and then I analyze everything, and I'm like, okay, so pivot chord wise, I can go here, here, or here, and spend a bit of time sussing it out because I do sometimes in the way that the melodies work, I naturally kind of modulate from one place to another. Even with something really simple, like I did a, like for Halloween, I did a stupid version of Spooky Scary Skeletons and like a jazzy way. Awesome. And I was doing, I kind of got to the end of the first bit and then realized that my brain was desperate to change key. And so worked out where it was that I wanted to go. But the original doesn't change key and I haven't changed the melody. So I've had, I have no idea why I felt this. And it is like it is right. It feels right to change key there, because I think I've changed, like I've reharmonized it a bit, so it doesn't lead back to itself. It leads somewhere else. But I change, I change key quite a lot. That's quite rare for people that play in open tunings quite a lot, you know. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I I I wrote a song in um Dugadigad, um that I think, and it it, it was inspired by. I th- so you say I need something was was a track in that I think it was that track. Um, it was inspired by a similar kind of way of writing to get that fourth, which was yeah. If your fretting hand is so busy, like I, I was doing like a jig, it's on on my first album, just like a yeah something that's very very busy and all over the neck horizontally. Sometimes you 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 can't fret. So you want to go to that open string and you get that, you know, D, 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 G, D, Yeah, it's just like a nice nice vibe. Very happy vibes. So yeah, Dugadigad is something you should all experiment with. It is a good one. And then like kind of go down more like a Thomas Lieb tuning where you can lower the the bottom E again a tone, which is a tuning I absolutely love. There's so much you can do with that. So that's a good 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have a, a track with that called, called Beirut, I think, as well. That's a that's nice, great. that's got color to it for sure. It's so, so the low juicy. C. It's got my favorite chord. My favorite chord. I, didn't, I haven't actually analyzed what it is, but if you're in that tuning and you can either do it down or you can take your hands up an octave as well, so it's really spread out, but it's your, so it's the third fret of the B string and then the second fret of the D string and then everything else open. But if you take that up an octave as well, yeah, it's just covers so much ground. It's so spread out. Big juicy vibes. Yeah. That's it. That's it. It's, it's so nice to, to be able to fill the space like that and play like a piano. I always say this, like play like a piano and and having a low C is so freaking fantastic. And I must, um, on the subject of Thomas Lieb, I must, uh, uh, just put, now I've got you on here. And we're talking about Thomas, and we've been talking about Eric as well. Yeah. Um, there's been so many questions, you know, I've had it over the years, and I'm sure you have as well, about the little scratch plate thing. Oh, yeah. People love talking about that. It's probably the thing I use the least. Right, right. Like, I use it so sparingly. I occasionally touch it. But people are so fascinated by it. Love it. Where can I get one of those things? Well, a tree um, is where you get it. So so this, you can actually see it. For anyone watching the video here, you can see on the guitar behind me there, there's a little scratch plate, like a teardrop thing. I'm trying to control my finger there. Um, now, Probably got one as well. Yeah. Um, Newton's got this on, on his guitars as well. And from my understanding, it basically came from Nick Benjamin, who is the luthier we were talking about, who's who's made guitars for both of us. But um, was it his idea or was it a player's? Was it, it could have been I Eric. thought it was Eric's. I, uh, from what I understand, yeah, Eric... No, it is. But it Nick is put it on, right? Like, Nick put it on his guitar. What Eric had done is he'd violently hit the guitar so many millions of times that all the varnish had gone yeah. and it had started getting rough. So he had this little rough bit just in the top kind of plate, so the top bit of wood, um, it naturally kind of occurred. But he started using it, and it's with like uh, with acrylic nails. Mm. It makes such a good kind of scratchy, kind of yeah. kind of thing. And then, yeah, when Eric was – no, when Nick was building something for me, he was like, would you like a, like a rough plate on there? And I was like, yeah, more noise is the better. And that's – yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that was on my. So that's on. Old, I'd call it old Ben. So it's my oldest, Nick Benjamin. Number forty-four, right? Number forty-four. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The um, I think Thomas Lee also got that from Eric because I think Eric taught Thomas as well. Correct. So it's this kind of. Well, they kind of. Or like they, they kind of. To be honest, worked they together could, or played together. Or yeah, something. they kind of taught each other. Right. Because they came from different backgrounds. we were like kind of quite different players. But then they kind of met and combined, like their combined knowledge kind of changed the way they both played. This is a really interesting musical relationship. No, and it changed the way that the whole fingerstyle scene's been since. Honestly, I mean, this, the amount of kids I see with these scratch things from all over the world, from Bangladesh to China to everywhere. And it all basically came out of this whole Eric Roche, Nick Benjamin kind of world and yourself and 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 thomas um and i kind of copied it from you guys you know and uh it's kind of pfft, gone kind of crazy it's uh it it's is really, very really cool simple very effective extra layer of percussive tone so you haven't just got impact you've got this noise that kind of 
It's almost like a like a riser in like a dance track. It's got this natural kind of yeah. thing to it, which is yeah, it's so handy. You can use it in so many creative ways for sure. It's uh, it's really cool. That's the only accessory I have so far. I haven't quite got the the MIDI uh, foot thing, but uh, I mean the MIDI foot thing. I've seen lots of other people with. Um, I think Ryan Keane's been he's been yeah. pedaling it up for a while. It's I was talking to Ryan uh, the other day. He hit me up actually. I haven't seen him in a in a while. I saw he was doing something with Gavin James. Um, yeah, yeah, him day. and Gavin are really good friends. Cool, he's cool. an amazing singer. Gavin's ridiculous. Man, what a voice! Yeah, yeah. relentlessly flawless. No matter how many Guinnesses he has. <laughs> Fantastic. I was amazed because I watched him drinking, and then I watched him sing, and I was like, "That's unfair." <laughs> that's so cruel i like literally warm up for hours and do all this crazy stuff to kind of stay in the game but you do it's a bit like kind of martin harley and like physically playing but i've seen him play voice, incredible player. play flawlessly when he couldn't walk like it doesn't make any sense well he's doing the blues that's why it doesn't matter <laughs> you still gotta like hit the right notes. It's astonishing. I, I play a gig with him every year in, uh, in Germany at Andreas Kuntz, other guitar luthier I work with, uh, his workshop in Germany, and that's that's always a, a beer fest uh, over imagine. there, plus German sausage and things like that. Talking of your vocal, um, something I did want to touch on, um, mm. uh, albeit briefly because of time, is... Uh, is another strange crossover uh, in in into the Justin Hayward world. Is that you were the the you were your young Justin Hayward on the War of the Worlds? I was, yeah. Oh. That was such a crazy thing. That to was do. insane. I went to see that, and there was robot spiders from oh. space and flames. And how did that happen? Well, that's. I think they just got in touch, and I was like, listen to the songs, and I was like, that's in a nice bit of my voice. I can can work with that. And it was like, it's only this long, and. You just come out, do it, and then you, then you're done. And I was kind of between projects, and I had like this little gap, and it was like, and I'd already done American Idiot, so I'd been into that world a little bit. The Green Day, Green Day musical. Yeah, oh, yeah. this by comparison felt like a lovely little holiday. Wow, because American Idiot was such hard work, like so physically demanding in so many ways and so like emotionally demanding because I was like, I've done a little bit of acting, but not a lot. And I had to, I had to cry and I had to do all this stuff. And it was like, tried loads of different ways of getting to that point. Some of which took me like weeks to recover from. Like it's horrific. Wow. Um, I also lost like three stone. I got really small because I was in my pants every night. It was just brutal, like really, really tough. Um, but then this, I was like, what, you want me to just walk out and go, and I was like, I can do that. That's easy. Yeah, bring it on. Um, but it was, yeah, it was such a huge thing, just beast of a thing to be involved in. Like the bands, how many people in the band? Like 17? Like massive, it was crazy. insane. And I mean, I saw it at the Motorpoint Arena in Cardiff, and that would have been a smaller version because there was only one robot spider from space. Yeah, I think there's three three max, but also amazing singers as well. Like everyone involved um was yeah, amazing. So many good people. Yeah. It was an amazing thing to see and you you know you you have this incredible powerful voice. I totally see how it translates into musical theater and that kind of project. Um, well, it's like a, yeah, it's an instrument I I almost feel like I've put more time into my voice than I have playing guitar for quite a while. I felt like guitar I kind of was early and I really got into it and I played 
Like I put in my 10,000 plus hours and really like I really got into it and then been trying to make my voice kind of catch up. And then with tracks like kind of fingertips or something that's very much like not about guitar, it's just like a big sing. Um, it's been really, it's quite a major leap from where I started. because I was very much a guitarist who occasionally sang and then I'd, I put out a record, which I sang on, and I was having to find ways of doing that live. And then after touring relentlessly, I was like, every now and then, it's like, I lose this bit or that bit, and I want to get that back. And then I'm like, actually, I want to feel, I want to feel like a singer. I want to feel like I know what I'm doing in the same way that I do on the guitar. Like, I kind of know how everything's supposed to feel and do. And then I've got, I've got really scientific recently. And I've had loads of amazing vocal coaches, which have unlocked huge bits of my voice in different ways. But the person I'm working at the moment is so scientific. It's crazy. Like she's really like, well, you need to, you need to loosen this muscle under here and this muscle under here to absorb the air pressure. And so a lot of stuff about absorbing kind of reabsorbing air. Cause she watched me when I sing and veins would come up on my neck and it's like that. That's not good. That's why you're getting tired. Mm. And I was like, okay, so I'm reabsorbing air while I'm singing into my like the back of my lungs, and it sounds totally mental though. And, but there's all this all this kind of science and stuff behind it, which I'm really getting into. It's totally fascinating, whole new thing, which is, seems to be only just kind of getting going, and people are only just starting to kind of gain this whole new level of understanding. Yeah, it's it's nice for people to understand how hard singers work. I mean, a lot of um, a lot, I have a lot of friends in the in the metal world, and you know they sing like incredibly loudly and like screaming oh, and all of that. Really, stuff. I mean, I don't I don't really understand how because I kind of dip into like full on kind yeah. of rock mode every now and then, but I do find I need to lie down on a cup of tea afterwards. Yeah, I mean, uh, one friend in particular, <laughs> his name's Spencer. He sings in a band called Periphery, and they're one of these like big kind of screaming metal bands uh amazing band um and great guys and uh you know what i learned from him was was that it, it really doesn't come from the volume it's it's you know his his screaming is a not a lot louder than talking volume actually you know if you can control the volume um he's sort of ha- handling his technique that way which is really interesting um yeah it's a whole it's a whole thing if you look at someone like nathan james who's in uh, in War of the Worlds, he's a proper speech. Oh level. yeah, yeah, the the guy with the blonde hair and the kind of power metal rock kind of rock opera dude. Yeah, he yeah, he's great. in uh, Inglorious. Is his right. band right? But he's yeah, he's an absolute technician. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing stuff, man. It's, it, that was an amazing show to watch, and also you know, any time I get to see you work with Pyro is a is a is a thrill. <laughs> I know. I did. Yeah, nearly had my hair set on fire a number of nights. <laughs> It's amazing. Well, dude. So, so other than the, new, the 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 next single, so what's what what's your, what are your plans for the, the next kind of project? I mean, touring is a is a question mark. I know you had you, we were talking a few weeks ago, and you said you had a you had a gig, but maybe that got cancelled. Or um, yeah, I think all next? gigs are off now. I'm t- I've got all kinds of little things on the boil. Obviously, I've mapped out a kind of possible release strategy over the next pretty much for the next twelve months. Because I've got oh. all these tracks and it's just working out when to when to do them. I've got a kids project called My Music, which is music for kind of four to maybe seven year olds. Oh, very cool! Which is quite, I and mean, it's fascinating. It's no finger tapping. Form. 
<laughs> a little bit. I did manage to get some in. <laughs> but it, yeah, the whole challenge was to write uh, an album. And it was me, my brother and Jimmy Sims wrote it, wrote all the music together. And it takes a small child from the moment they wake up to the end of the day. So it covers waking up, getting dressed, going to school, um, break time at school. And we tried to kind of cover as many genres and as many things. So there's like a kind of Steppenwolfy, how do you get to school song, which is kind of arm out the window, proper dad song. That's awesome. It's a country song about vegetables. Of which course. Is a bit kind of Chris Stapleton-y. Yeah, it's really fascinating thing, but that's kind of taking on a bit of new meaning and there's a bit of an influx of activity there. So I might need to do more stuff for that. But yeah, it's just, I mean, you've just got to be really inventive Mm. at the moment. You've got to find ways of communicating with your fan base and growing your fan base that aren't, yeah, aren't the traditional ones because they're not, they're not possible right now. Mm. So I very much completely relied on gigs. I thought if I go out and I do a good gig, all the people go away, talk to their friends. Next time, do a slightly bigger gig. Done. Great. Really simple. But that's not physically possible at the moment. So it's very much this trying to grow and trying to, like I'm massively trying to up my kind of tech setup at home to be able to communicate on the level that I want to with, with the people that are happy to talk to me. Awesome. Yeah, it's 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 inspiring to it's always inspiring to talk to uh, a musician who's sort of dealing with this this kind of covid situation with such productivity and and looking forward and being smart about about what you can realistically do and uh and stay really uh, inspired. Yeah. We've got well obviously like with music and playing and it's all still there. Hmm. You just can't do it in front of people in the way that you used to. So it's finding ways of keeping it interesting and keeping it fresh. And I've loved making records because I've had more time to make the last few records than I've ever had to work on anything else. Yeah. Not five weeks in a 24 hour a day zoo. Um, you yeah. It's like a, a 12 track album as well. So there's a lot. Amazing. Well, dude, it's super inspiring to talk to someone who's sort of such a prolific live act and uh, dealing with this whole thing so positively. And thanks for sharing. Well, I'm your trying little, to. Words of words of wisdom for all the uh, other people. I appreciate that. And, oh, uh, well, thank you for having me, dude. It's been a pleasure. Nice to catch up, and uh, thanks for coming on this 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 little thing. And uh, yeah, looking forward to catching up in in person one time. Um, Newton Faulkner, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> thanks so much, man. Take care. Absolute pleasure, dude. I'll see you in a bit. Hey guys, thanks so much for checking out this week's episode of the podcast. For more information about this week's guest, head to the link in the description where you will also find more information about the Tonewood amp as well as that cheeky little discount you can get as well. Lots of love. See you next time.